Some people think I'm a hot dog. I have no idea why. I don't. Could you put that last slide up? The last one you just did? The prayer request one? I want to ask you a question. Why should we be concerned about the lost? Why should we be concerned about the lost? You know? Uh, yes, and you know, yes, definitely. And so we say prayers for all. God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's our little thank you. Our little title is why should you can take it down now? Why should we be concerned about the lost? And um, I ask myself that question. I actually I ask myself the question often. And I think there are three reasons why. I'm, I'm sure there are other reasons. I mean, more than what we're going to talk about. But let's just deal with three reasons. And you might ask yourself the question, what are those reasons? What are those reasons why we should be concerned about the lost? And um, I think, first of all, we should be concerned about the lost because people are on their way to hell. People are on their way to hell. So, we, Brian, will I get a lot of back feet if I walk around? Uh, no, but you can sit back in Okay. Okay. Just, we, we know this. We know this. But just, just. Without Jesus Christ, it's over for them. Without Jesus Christ, it's all over for them. They will spend eternity in the lake of fire. We should be concerned about the loss because people are on their way to hell. And then hell and death will be cast into the lake of fire, so says Revelation. Two huge passages that really talk about this. It's Luke 16 and also Revelation chapter 20. When we look at that, you know, it's an interesting thing because when we look at this, when we look at what the Bible has to say about, and this is the theological rendition of this, divine retribution. And that almost doesn't sanitize it, but when you say divine retribution, what do you mean by that? You mean that God is going to judge them in, a, in a, the worst place imaginable. You can't imagine it. There's a lot of people who do not like the idea of hell. They don't like the idea of the lake of fire. They don't like that idea. Well, neither do I. But understand this. Jesus preached more about hell than he did heaven. He preached more about hell than he did any other subject in the Bible. Did you know that? He preached more on hell than anybody else in the New Testament. And he died on the cross to save us from it. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, there go we. You know, we walk around and some of us got saved. I met a guy uh, and he was a, he was a clubber. 
And uh, he got saved at the age of 70. He's 79 now. And he played in the clubs. He was the piano man, uh, if you please, that Billy Joel sings about, right? He went to clubs. He got off his job at, uh, uh, I think it was General Motors, and he worked for General Motors in Canada. Uh, and uh, he got off his job then like at 3 or 3.30 in the afternoon, and then he'd go to the club until 6 and play at a particular uh, bar, the piano. He went from that job to another job and played to about 2 in the morning and then went to his job at 6.30 in the morning, and that's what he did most of his life. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Then he gets saved at the age of 70. You know, praise God. Now he's 79 years of age and he's one of the most, he's a delightful brother in Christ. We had so much fun together. I preached, they took us out, took me out and uh, for, you know, an afternoon and we had a, a blast, right? But this guy really keenly understood the whole issue of being lost for 70 years. And, and the thing is, you know, no, no meaning and purpose in his life, nothing like that. No, he's trying to find it so desperately. And then finally somebody got to him. But the Lord Jesus declares this issue of hell as real. Look, turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. When we look at this, Mark chapter 9, this is... There are some theologians today that are telling us that hell will be terminated. Uh, And actually it will be in the sense that it will be cast into the lake of fire. But what they mean is divine retribution forever and ever will be terminated. In other words, they will be annihilated. John R.W. Stott, Clark Pinnock, these guys hold to that very thing. I had a friend of mine who said to me, Chris, he said, you know... uh, the Bible teaches clearly that we're, you know, those who are without Christ will be annihilated. They'll be just poofed out of existence after a, a time. I said, Joe, are you kidding me? He goes, no, I'm not kidding you. He says, that's exactly what it is. And he, he tried to prove it with a verse. Keep your finger in Mark, but turn to 2 Thessalonians 1.9. And, and when you look at this passage, it's, really, it's just really amazing uh, how he got to this issue. He says to me, and he's a delightful individual, and it says, uh, verse 8 of first Thess- 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and the flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. I want to let you know something. That is just as inspired as, as John 3.16. For God so loved the world. We always love that verse. I love that verse. But this verse is just as inspired, just as equal, it's equally inspired. Everlasting destruction. He said to me, Chris, that word aeonius in the Greek, everlasting, means that there's a terminus point in it. I said, Joe, you serious? He goes, oh, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely, there's a terminus point. And he said, that thus we will be annihilated. Those who without Christ will be annihilated. And I said, well, that's interesting, Joe, because in, John, in Romans chapter 16, verse 26, it says everlasting God. It's the same Greek word, aeonius. I said, I guess God is going to have a terminate, terminus point, right? 
God is going to be annihilated, terminated. He just looked at me. Uh, no, no. I said, it's an identical word, Joe. You can't say this. You can't say this. And going back to Mark, notice what the Lord Jesus said. He says in verse 43, or verse 42, Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hung about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter in the, into life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Al, don't you, don't you see the imagery here, Chris? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't see the imagery here. You know, the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. This is exactly what he means. He's not, I mean, because you have in other passages everlasting destruction ever being consumed but never being destroyed. And then in Revelation chapter, in chapter 20, it says the, the everlasting, or the, the uh, uh, lake of fire, this is the second death. I've got to take it for face value. I'm not going to ascribe imagery to something that is not imaging anything except the reality that this is what it is. Now, like, I hate it. I don't like it. I don't like that aspect of it. But it's biblical. Jesus preached on it. He died on the cross to save us from it. People are on their way to hell. And then it's an awful thing. Now, you know... It's my pride that says to me, that talks to me, and says that I'm better than somebody else. It's my pride that says to me, oh, you're better than that guy sleeping on the, on the beach, or that, that, that kid that's doing drugs, or that, you know, whatever, down the line, that alcoholic that messed his life up, or that Ted Bundy guy, you know Ted Bundy here in Florida, that Ted Bundy guy, you know, I'm better than him. And i got to tell you something. No, you're not. You're not better than him. If you say you're better than him, you do not know the biblical doctrine of sin. It is deceptive. It deceives the heart. We're desperately wicked. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord God, search the hearts. God knows it. We need to agree with God as to our sinful condition. Then we will not look at that, that drug addict. We will not look at that person or even that person who is, smells good and is tremendous and is a great salesman and loves his family or her family, all that kind of stuff. We'll look at everybody the same. That's exactly what we'll do. And actually, we'll understand that we have been rescued. And we have the only message that can rescue. So it's real. It is absolutely real. And in Colossians chapter 2, if you turn there, Colossians chapter 2, that's to the right. Colossians chapter 2, when you look at Colossians chapter 2, and you see verses 13 through 15, look at this, and you, being dead in your sins, and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. 
blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over, over them in it. His cross, Jesus' death on that cross, his resurrection, my trust in him gives me life. That's it. Gives me life. And it doesn't matter who you are. And it, this is exactly what it is. You know, people are on their way to hell. Somebody once said the best seminary. Now, we have a school of evangelism, the Ezekiel Project School of Evangelism. We call it affectionately TEPSI. And it's a nine-month program, and it's a good school and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's a, it's a great school, but it's not going to give you the burden. Only God can give you the burden. Somebody once said this. In fact, I think it was uh, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. The best seminary in all the world is 30 seconds in hell. That'll, that'll light, to pardon the pun there, your fire. And we see this in, in Luke chapter 16. The, the guy who, in, to this moment, that's not, a, that's not a parable. It's an historical event that's happening this very moment. That guy is in hell he just wanted one touch, he wanted one little drop of water, just one drop of water on the fingertip to cool, one drop on his tongue to cool, his, cool him in the flame. And the Lord Jesus gave us that imagery. The Lord Jesus showed us beyond the veil of what had taken place in that. And he was an evangelist. And... A believer, not for salvation, but he was a believer in the knowing that this, what he, what he is experiencing, is because he rejected the only thing that could save him from it. He rejected it. Now people who are in hell this very moment, they know the situation. He says, send somebody from the dead to, save, to talk to my five brothers. Send them back. And Abraham said if they, didn't, if they don't hear one, they're not going to hear somebody. They don't hear Moses, they're not going to hear somebody that come from the dead. Not going to do it. If we walk out of here today, i got to just say this. If we walk out of here today, blasé about what we're talking about, shame on you. Amen. Absolutely, because God's heart, we're not synced with God's heart. God's heart is to rescue the perishing. That's God's heart. That's why he sent his son. And if we walk out of here and say, you know, what, what is that to me? What is that to me? Something's seriously wrong with you, spiritually speaking. Dead dog serious about something seriously wrong with you. And if you don't like what I just said about that, that's all right. We, we stand before God on this. We stand before God. You know what I love about this assembly? I'll tell you exactly what I love about Boulevard Bible Chapel in Hollywood, Florida. 
is this map. You know this map? I like that map. It seems like uh, you're taking it kind of seriously because somebody, this is, these are, looks like the streets and the homes that you have got. You've got Team A, Team B, Team C. We should have more names here. Reaching the lost. Ministering to them. We were talking today, we're, we're, you know, in our seminar here, and you're very gracious to allow us to be here. And we were talking about the issue of caring for the lost. And what would it have been like? I got saved at 18. You got saved at 28, 29. Uh, most of our conferees were saved as, you know, single digits, like seven, nine, that kind of stuff. Praise God for that. And I said, and Dave Bosworth, five, right? You said five years of age, and uh, your son said three to four. I mean, I, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine being growing up in a Christian home. I can't imagine if somebody would have come to our door in Willoughby, Ohio, knocked on it, and bridged with us, and led my parents to Christ, and led us to Christ. That would have been incredible. That would have been fantastic, wouldn't it have been? Wouldn't it have been somebody, just somebody cared enough to reach, to reach out and to tell us about Jesus Christ and make it in such a way that it would have been interesting for us to, to listen to that person? That would have been fantastic. My friend John Gorman and I, we were raised, we got both, he got saved in February. He hitchhiked all the way from the University of, of Louisville all the way to northeastern Ohio, eight hours, just to tell me about Jesus Christ. Just to tell me one time about Jesus Christ. And I was a Roman Catholic and I thought he had played too many games without a helmet. I did. I'm thinking, oh, John, I'm all right. Maybe he hit his head on the goalpost. You know, I don't know. You know, that's exactly what I thought. I'm thinking, what's the deal, John? I'm okay. And took a, a guy who was, I considered a Protestant to tell me that Jesus loved me. And I'm going, how can a Protestant tell me, a Catholic, that Jesus loved me? You guys are burning. You know, us Catholics, we're going. You know, we got the corner on God. Come on, what are you talking about? But I listened. And I trusted Christ. 18. And I didn't have a life of debauchery. As far as this world was concerned. But before God, I man, I was bad news. Lost, going to hell. Somebody cared. Somebody cared. I, I share this story. Um, I forget where I share stories. This is really bad. Uh, <laughs> when, I, when I first got saved, I got saved on March 22nd. He's the 23rd, 1971. So it's 45, my 45th birthday was yesterday, spiritually speaking. <laughs> A little older than that. I was 18, so do the math, okay? And um, I, we started this prayer meeting. I mean, I, nah, I didn't know anything. We, but we started this, just five of us got together in this church that was open all the time, and we went into the upper room, and we just started praying together and talking and singing some hymns. We had no idea. 
By the end of that summer, it was 105 people. People were getting saved. I mean, it's not like we strategized. It just people were coming. People were getting saved. How's it going, bro? You need try. You need Christ. Okay, sure. Let's do. What do we? What do I say? You know, it's fantastic. They were dropping like flies for the kingdom. You know, and it was really cool. I remember coming down. Now I'm going to back up. Now, see, I have to tell you this. When I was uh, growing up, I lived on Wood Street. In Willoughby, Ohio, everybody played together, all the kids in the neighborhood. And we all played baseball at Browning School. We played football, and when it snowed a lot, we had, you know, snowball fights. All the kids in the neighborhood. This was a cool, it was a cool, cool childhood in that regard, right? Gail Musser, with her brother Gary, both of them were adopted by the Musser family. <clears throat> and... Um, Gail walked like this. She walked like this because she had braces from the hips all the way down to her ankles. And she had braces, right? The scoop on the street was, the street, on our street, was if, she, if Gail falls down, she'll have to wear, you know, if she falls down hard, she'll have to wear those braces another six months. Twice, knocked her down. She wore those braces another year because of me. She was about a year or two behind me in school. We're at this prayer meeting. I'm now 18, 19 years of age, now about 19. I come down from the upper room at this church, and I'm bounding down. And there's Gail. And she looks at me. Now she doesn't have to wear braces anymore. She outgrew them. She looks at me and goes, Chris? I go, hi, Gail. She goes, Chris Schroeder? I go, yeah. She goes, what are you doing here? I said, I got saved. And she said to me, I prayed six years for you to come to Christ. Me, knocking her down. She cared about my soul. She, she loved me in that regard. She loved my soul. She loved, she'd been praying. And then she goes and starts telling me about Mr., Mrs. Atwood. We thought she was the Boo Radley of our neighborhood. If you know To Kill a Mockingbird, you know this. That we thought Mrs. Mrs. Atwood, the green sweatered lady, you know, you know, never said much, just shuffled in and out of her house. And she, well, this, don't talk to her. She's really, you know. We were afraid of Miss. If she came near me, we, you know, that kind of thing. And Mr. Atwood, he was a pain of the neighborhood, you know. And and you know, I mean, just. Right? And I remember when she died and we just, you know, Mrs. Atwood died. She was old when I knew her, you know. I mean, she was really old, old all the time. I mean, you never, never thought of Mrs. Atwood as young. Well, Gail told me Mrs. Atwood was a born-again believer praying for everybody on that street. She had prayed for the Wolfords, the Schroeders, the Mussers. 
She went up and down the street and prayed for every one of us, for us, for our families to get saved. My mom and dad got saved. I got saved. I think my brother got saved. And I mean, it just, and the musters got saved. I mean, I don't know about the burns. I'm not sure about the war, but see, you see what these people are doing. They're praying for people's souls that they would come to Christ. Why? Because the, the end result is people are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. And that's real fire. And that's real separation. So why should we be concerned about the lost? Because they're on their way to hell. And not only because they're on their way to hell, but because Christ is coming at any moment. Christ is coming at any moment. You know this passage. I hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When we look at this passage, 13 through 18, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, we look at this passage and we say to ourselves, Wow! I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them who also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not go before or precede them who are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead, shall, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I love that song. Coming again. I always think of roller skating when I hear that. Coming again. I can't roller skate if my life depended on it. I'm, I'm cleaning the floor, you know, or the ice. If you've got ice skates, maybe morning, maybe noon. I love that. Don't you love that? So melodic. By John W. Peterson, a Moody Bible Institute graduate. God bless the school, right? And uh, I look at that and I say, he's, he is. He's coming again. Maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, and maybe soon. It could come at any moment. I believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of that. I am pre-trib, pre-mill, period. And I can defend it. Biblically, we can defend it. And um, what does it mean, though? Well, it means that there's no more pain or problems, right? And that's what we want. We're sick. Are you sick of this world? Yeah, I'm sick of it, too. Oh, I don't like the political system. And man, that guy, what a creepo. And uh, can you imagine our standing in the world? And all this kind of stuff. We say, oh, come Lord Jesus, you know, this kind of thing. Not realizing that when Paul wrote this, it was a little bit worse. It was actually a lot worse. It was a lot worse. And we say, well, it's an end of our, our pain and our problems, you know. And there goes my glasses. And uh, we, we say that. And, uh, yeah. And so I say to myself, oh, come Lord Jesus, because my glasses fell apart. You know. 
And, uh, I mean, you know, that's, oh, that's terrible type of thing. But, you know, you look at this kind of thing, and no more pain, no more problems. Uh, and some people say it's the beginning of the tribulation, actually the signing of the covenant with the Antichrist in the seventh year, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. The signing of the covenant starts that week, not the rapture of the church. The, you know, taking up, but the great tribulation starts... A, a, you know, a little bit time afterwards after he signs the covenant. But also think about this. I want the Lord to come, you know. Some people say, when I first got saved, we just used to do rapture practice. You know, we did, we did, we did rapture practice. Okay, man. And I could jump in, high, in college, man. I could jump, you know, rapture, boom, okay, what's it going to be like? Oh, let's practice, you know, that kind of thing. Will we be grease spots? Will I lose weight? Uh, uh, will I have hair, no hair, the pimples, are they going to be gone? What is the deal? If I'm buried or we go through a graveyard and we get raptured, will the, dust, the dirt fly? I mean, all these, all these really important things. Not really. We look at that and we say, man, all this stuff. But you know what it's going to be an end of? My opportunity to talk to my neighbor. My opportunity to talk to my boss or co-worker or family member. No more opportunity. That's it. That's it. And I look at this and I say to myself, I, you know, we have to work while it is yet day. Because Jesus said this, the night comes when no man can work. We have to work while we have the opportunity. You know, people in the trades, the guys who are in the trades, you know, plumbers and, you know, that kind of stuff, the building trades specifically, and that's right, bro, they got to make hay while they can. Because, you know, they do that track of homes, that track of homes is going to end. They don't have the steady job. You know, they got to have another track of homes to build, to put the wiring in, to build the, all that rough. So they go, man, we got to do it while we can do it now. And i got to make hay while I can make hay. Right? Why don't we think this way while we're witnessing? If Jesus Christ could come tonight, what an incredible illustration. You know, about the rapture of the church. I believe in the rapture of the church. <clears throat> it would be, you know, gone. You know, that would be so cool. And, and it, but it's the end of my opportunity to tell my, you know, my sister about Christ, to tell anybody about Christ. It's the end. It's over. I think that's a pretty good reason. Why should we be concerned about the lost? It's our obligation. It's your obligation. It is. Mr. Ward, it's your obligation. Yeah, it's there. It's your obligation. It's your obligation. It's my obligation. Why? Because Christ commands it. He can go into all the world and preach the gospel. I am commanded by God. And it has nothing to do how I feel about it. 
has nothing to do whether I've got, you know, a bleeding ulcer, or I got the flu, or I've nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with how I feel about this at the time. Because if you're waiting to feel the tip-top and in great shape to do that, you will never do this, especially if you get geezerly. It's true. You know how it is. You do. <laughs> Don't point at him. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, you know, you, the older you get on this kind of stuff, you go, oh, man, oh, yeah, oh. You know, but I, when I played high school and college basketball, I've gotten my nose broken. I've gotten molars loosened. They had to bite them back in into place. I've had broken bones, bone chips on the elbows and all that stuff, and still played. I remember one time I got a bone bruise on the femur. It was the biggest bone. Boom. You go like this. Ah! You know, and we still played. You know, Sprained ankles, both ankles sprained, rolling a half a table, looked like the mummy running down the running down the, the court. I still played, and I'm thinking to myself, I did that for a ball that goes through an iron hoop. I can't tell somebody about Christ. I can't tell somebody about Jesus Christ. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Listen, I'm afraid that if they don't hear it, they won't believe it. And if they don't believe it, how shall they hear without a preacher? We have got to get to them. So, Christ commands it, and our duty, our duty, you understand that word? Duty? You must do this? Demands it. Christ commands it. Duty demands it. And if you've got a little kid, what a great witnessing tool. Nobody is ever going to shut you down when you've got a baby in your hand. So borrow one sometime. You know? Oh, I'm done with all of our kids. Grandkids. Go witnessing to them all. You know, here's some good news. Oh, like, oh thank you. They're not going to turn you down. Look at the little kid, you know. And have the kid go... Smile a little bit. But this is what it is. God demands it of us. Duty demands it. Christ commands it from us to do this. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's not a suggestion. It's a command. Did you ever hear of the Haystack Revival? Yeah, it's really cool. These guys, Adonai and Judson... These different guys, they were out, they took a map of the world into the haste, you know, at harvest time, and they just put a map out in the field and with all these little haystacks, and they knelt down over the, over the field, in, in, the, in the field, over, and started praying over the map. Every one of those guys went on to the mission field and preached the gospel. Judson did it. All these guys that were there, God put feet on their prayers. They put feet on there. They went and did it. The Haystack Revival and missionaries started going all over the place. Then there was this little skinny guy years later, this skinny guy who probably read about that revival in church history. American church history. 
And he just decided to himself, he's living at the Lawson Y in Chicago and attending the Moody Bible Institute. He starts going crazy. What he does is this. He's living at the Y and they have common showers, like in a locker room. You know, so he had his room and they had a common bathroom. So he goes in there and he picks up the little pieces of soap from guys who just took the soap and they're washing them and they just throw it down and they forget it. He picks those things up and sticks them all together and then saves his money and gives that money to missions. And he realizes, wait a minute, we need to pray over the world. So he takes a map, gets a whole bunch of students, and he kneeled down in, the, in, the, in Lawson Y, and they kneel down in different places at Moody Bible Institute, and they start praying for missions. And then he gets this, he graduates, he gets this brainiac idea to buy two ocean-going ships. His name is George Verwer. And he goes all over the world with literature, taking trucks and stuff and, and preaching on the streets to places you could never get into. And he does that. Goes to Mexico, goes to all over the place, putting feet on his prayers. Why should we be so concerned about the lost? I just, my friend John said to me one time, he got saved a month before me, tried to tell me about Christ. And he said to me, and it was so convicting, it was unbelievable to me. Never forgot it. He said to me, Chris, what could be more important in all of life than to tell somebody else about Jesus Christ? What could be more important? I see this guy blinking <laughs> and then smiling. In, season, in season and out of season. That's it, bro. And I ask myself the question, and I see this beautiful lady who gets a needle in the eye every month so she can see. And then I, I see us walking around, and I see this to replicate this movement mechanically, millions and millions of dollars of R&D, research and development, just to get this, if I had a prosthetic. Just to get this, and yet I'm doing it. I ask myself this question. Why in the world am I so mobile, have such good eyesight, have the sense of smell, have the ability to walk, have the ability to laugh and to communicate and to think, why could we possibly say that God built us this way and wants us to use all the equipment that he has given us to tell another person about Jesus Christ and to bring him glory? Is that the reason?
I say yes. I say yes, and I tell you why. Because what else is there? I got a I got a fantastic house. I got a great car. I'm a genius. You know? I'm not such a genius. No. It's for his glory. And what's his glory? And when is he the most glorified? I'll tell you what the angels would say to you, that when they rejoice at the soul of a person, uh, you know, the soul of a person who comes to Christ, they rejoice. And not only should we, but we should have the reason for rejoicing, and that is leading people to Christ. You know, I talked to Janie yesterday. We have a, a mutual friend, Janie Mellinger. She is, she looks like Cher. Isn't that right? That's right. She looks like Cher, sings better than Cher. <laughs> a lot better. A lot better. She's 63 years of age and was diagnosed with Parkinson's recently. And I talked to her yesterday. Her voice is starting to shaky and slur speech. It's progressing, you know. She got saved, I think, at the age of five. Father died. Mother never remarried. She went on. She's bilingual. She is a brilliant person. We went to Hollyweird Boulevard in Hollyweird, California. And it definitely is. And her and I talked to a person about Jesus Christ. She, she went to a high school, a, um, a Christian high school. She went to a Christian college, graduated from a Christian college, got her master's in, in uh, education and Spanish and all that. So we're on Hollyweird Boulevard, and we led this guy to Christ. And if you know Janie, Janie got excited, which is normal for Janie. I can't believe it! You know, con- if you were in context, they shatter. You know, so high pitched. You go, I can't I'm going, Janie, this is great. You know, and, she goes, and she's losing it. You know, and I said, Janie, what is, what is going on? I mean, you know, this is like real exuberant. I know you're exuberant, Janie, but what is the deal? She looks at me almost with tears in her eyes, and she says, "This is the first person I've ever led to Christ. This is fantastic. This is incredible." And talk about endorphins, you know. What a rush. (laughs) I tell you, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Why should we be so concerned about the lost? Because they're on their way to hell. Christ could come at any moment. And it's our obligation. Father, help us, we pray.